Welcome to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kasperson. Hey women, I'm so excited today. I have Dr. Winter with us. She is a urologist just like me and she does amazing things in her field. She's actually board certified urology with a fellowship and she did the only fellowship in America with Dr. Erwin Goldstein. So it's the only fellowship for women's sexual health and sexual dysfunction that exists which is crazy when you think about all the ones for men that exist. So she grew up in New Jersey and she went to Rutgers for her undergrad. She did her urology residency at Cornell in New York City. She currently works at Kaiser in Portland. You can follow her. She's active on Twitter at Ashley G. Winter. She's on Facebook at Ashley Winter MD. And she has a podcast just like me. You started your podcast way before me. And her podcast is called The Full Release, which she co-hosts with her fiance, Mo Mandel. I'm so excited to have you today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We were both talking before we started the recording for like an hour and a half, probably. So I know I'm like somebody's gonna tell somebody's gonna come in and like tell us to do to do the podcast at some point. So we should just hit record. I know. I know. My my fiance like went out, got lunch with somebody, like came back, like took a nap, and he's like. <laughs> you're like we haven't started yet i i don't know when it's gonna happen yeah. dude how did you get from from east coast to west coast okay so the way i got from east coast to west coast i i was doing my residency in new york city i thought at the time i would never god i can give you like a super long answer about everything i thought at the time i would like when i started residency i would never leave new york i grew up around new york i was like new york is the best place on the planet and when you go to residency in new york especially my program you like go between the hospital and where you live and another hospital and another hospital and it's all within like a three block radius and nobody has a car so you don't really go anywhere and there's a ton of life but it's very like it's big but it's also very small and I remember thinking towards the end of it like oh my god I need to like live under a different piece of sky like I just I don't I'm so much in the hospital like I, if I don't live anywhere else I'll have like I'll have very minimal like variety of experience like obviously you go on vacation but how many like weeks and years that right so so I was like I have to try living somewhere else and thankfully the fellowship I wanted to do was in California so so I ended up in California that was amazing and then everybody assumed that I would go back to New York they're like oh well you'll have to be back in New York right that's what you're gonna do and then I went to the western section of the American Neurologic Association conference which that year was in Hawaii and I was like talking to the guy who at the time was the chief of my group current group and he was like we're I luau and he's wearing like a hawaiian shirt and he was just so happy and relaxed and he's like oh yeah we're looking to hire people why don't you come interview like oh yeah yeah submit an application but like and i was like, oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like there's a minor formality of like your your resume yeah but why don't you come up to portland no, and, and for sure and they interviewed like plenty of people but you know the point being that like i was like this is great like this like being on the West Coast where you have your conferences in Hawaii is great. Like meeting people who seem so much more relaxed than all the doctors in New York is great. Like, like and I had never been to the Pacific Northwest. So I was like, I'm just gonna I'm gonna go there, like see what's up with that, you know? Would you say would you say you've fallen in love with Portland or you're like, I'm definitely West Coast for sure? Like how do you feel now having been here for a couple of years? I, I do love it. I do love it. I would a hundred percent say that. Like uh, you know, I was posting on Twitter today. I'm like, it's July and it was 60 degrees overnight and 78 of a high today and like low humidity. And I, yeah, it's, it's paradise. It's amazing. 
but we still have. We just tell everybody, the secret is we tell everybody it rains all the time to keep other people yeah. out. And it's like, <laughs> and, and, and somebody was like, but your winters are horrible. And I'm like, our winters are not horrible. It's like 40 degrees and you can go skiing like as a day trip. Like mm-hmm. that's not bad at all. Yeah. Like it was worse on the East coast. Like, I don't know. It was like, you know, 20 degrees and icy over there and there was no good skiing. Like, what's better about that? <laughs> like, Totally. Yeah, here, it's, it's mid-July right now when we're recording this podcast, and the high today in my town is 64 degrees. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And there's, I live on the ocean, but it's a very cold part of the ocean. <laughs> and there's, like, very few mosquitoes, which is incredible. Oh, I know. Like, it's incredible. It, I, it must be the lowest mosquito part of the country. Like, it's just, it's incredible. I mean, if you go out on the East Coast in the summertime at night, like, you have to be drenched in bug spray, or you will look like you have the chicken pox the next day and like here you don't ever have to do that so is your fiance from the west coast or is he gonna pull you to the east coast again oh no he's from northern california he's uh oh you're fine yeah he grew up in in, you're you're here to stay he grew up in like wine and weed country yeah you can't pull him you can't pull him oh no you can't can't put him back in new jersey no actually we always (laughs) talk about the fact that he grew up in this like podunk like hippie town everyone in their town like moved there in like 69 and like you know like roseweed and like and they're super chill but he's like he has like a new jersey sort of energy and like neuroticism to him and i'm like how did this happen to you like like how did you grow up in your like nice hippie like tiny rural california town and 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 like have like Oh, that's perfect because awesome. we get along so yeah you're like i get i get you you're, you're my people yeah definitely so how did you find how did you find urology after med school you're thinking, or in med school, you're like, okay, urology is what I'm going to do. How'd that happen? So this is a crazier thing. I was uh, in college, and I have an engineering degree, and that's what I finished. But I thought I was going to be an engineer. But I, like my dad and my grandfather were all engineers, and I was uh, working doing power supplies in a military like contracting defense contracting company over the summer and i was like so bored i wanted to shoot myself in the face and i was like i'm good at math and science and i like studying this but like i can't sit in a cubicle for the rest of my life like oh my god what am i gonna do and one of my family members like required the services of a urologist and i remember them like coming home and talking about their neurology appointment i was like that sounds cool And I literally was like, maybe I'll go. Were you like grasping at straws at that point? Or you were like, I'll take it. I'll try anything. No, I did. I I mean, like my my uncle worked in finance and I went and like went into like New York City. And I like, you know, at the time he actually like worked in one of the World Trade Center. Like, uh, it was after the World Trade Center, but you know, like whatever in that area. And I like went and I was like, do I want to work in finance? And I was like, no, like there are all these like really well-educated like Ivy Leaguers like scurrying around also sitting in cubicles there and I was like no (laughs) I mean little did I know that they would all I would have made a lot more money that way but (laughs) (laughs) no and and I was like oh you know like maybe I'll go be a urologist and I literally in my life never thought to be a doctor I don't know it seemed to me like something that people who had parents who were doctors became doctors and like people who didn't have parents who were doctors like didn't become doctors (laughs) like (laughs) Mm -hmm. I get that totally yeah like we did like my parents, I did not come from a medical family either, but it's like the people who had doctors in their family had like the key, yeah, you know, they had like the the passcode to get in. And otherwise it was, you know, and I went, there wasn't really a lot of internet. So like you really needed to figure out how to get to be a doctor. Yeah. You just like Google how to be a urologist. Yeah. 
Oh, so you know you you knew or you at least knew about urology before you started med school and then nothing nothing was better than that nothing won right out more. so i mean so i would go to med school and then obviously i said to myself well like i don't actually know anything about being a urologist so i'll keep my options open but i did summer after my first year which was key do research in like a prostate cancer lab and you know whatever so got a head start on that but then like i went through all my rotations and i actually remember I was on this neurosurgery rotation because we could take that instead of neurology. So I actually like never did the neurology class or whatever you're supposed to do. <laughs> and I was like watching basically some like 12 hour like inner ear surgery that was just like, of course, they weren't going to let a med student do anything in. And I was so bored. I just walked out of the room and I walked just like walked into a urology room and there was a necrotic dead penis and the attending was just going to cut it off. And he had no one to help him. And he was like, hey, who are you? And I'm like, I am a med student. I'm in the neurosurgery, like, rotation. And he's like, do you want to scrub in and, like, cut this penis off? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I really want to do that. <laughs> he's like, he's like, you'll enjoy this like more than me. Because <laughs> he's, like, making jokes. It's like a girl, you know, whatever. And I was like, yeah, I could get into this. Like, I, I get the vibe that's going on over here. Like, the neurosurgery was too serious, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, just I just fell in love. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. So you did, I mean, you, we all did, we did residency and it's hard and it's long. Plus you had like added bonus of like the intensity of New York City in your residency. Why were you like, let me do more of this and do a fellowship? Tell me how the fellowship with Dr. Goldstein happened. Sure. So I was at a conference uh, actually, it was like an infertility conference, and I was like the ASRM to whatever people, a lot of people who listen probably don't know what that is, but whatever. It's a big like conference about infertility stuff, and and I had like a few abstracts related to like male sexuality, which is like a very small subsection of that, but like at that conference, people really like, don't care that much. <laughs> but I was just talking about like stuff I thought about like women's health and men's health and like how, you know, you're trained to do all these really sophisticated surgeries but when somebody comes in to our clinic and is like, I have ball pain, like I wasn't well trained to deal with them. Or when a woman came in and was like, I feel like I have UTIs, but I don't have any UTIs and they keep checking and I'm miserable and they can't fix it. And I was like, I don't understand those problems, right? And I've had like six years of surgical training and I can tell you all about robotic cystectomies. And I, and if somebody comes in with ball pain or like feel like I have UTIs, how do I deal with that? You know? And then they, someone at that conference was like, Oh, you need to like check out Erwin Goldstein. He's got this like super interesting program and they do like male and female sexuality. And like, he's crazy, <laughs> like in a good way. But, uh, yeah. and I, and I started looking into it and he's like, yeah, I need to like, I need to learn about more about like male and female sexuality and sexual pain disorders and hormones and like all those things that like urologists see but don't ever spend a lot a lot of their training learning about so i so i spent an extra year learning about that and it was Awesome. awesome. I mean, I think when I when I started getting into it, you know, I went to this Ishwish conference, which is the, for the International Society for Women's Sexual Health, and there were all these gynecologists there. And I actually ran into a gynecologist who I went to med school with, and I'm like, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> and she's like, "Well, I don't, I didn't learn this stuff. This is amazing. I'm learning so much." And my big, you know, stereotype going in was that the gynecologist knew this, and the urologist just didn't know it. But it turns out, like, the gynecologists don't get trained in women's sexual health either. Yeah. 
No. It blew my mind. Nobody gets but I'm like, they're, Yeah. Yeah. They're busy. They're busy, you know, preventing pregnancies and, and delivering babies and like doing all these things. It's like they didn't learn about female sexual health either. Yeah. It's fascinating. So I, was, I remember when I started as a attending and we were like going through our IT training and like some billing training and they were, you know, talking about like coding for a complete like an in-depth genitourinary exam, like how to bill for that. And they showed like an example of like a high level male general exam and female. And in the, in, in the complete female exam, genitourinary exam, the word clitoris like was not there. Like in, examining a clitoris is not part of like documenting, you know, a complete genitourinary exam. Right. And I'm not saying like, obviously, you don't have to do that. But if you want to bill for like doing a high level and that specific and including all the target points. And I'm like, how is this not even listed there? Like that would be like not including a penis on a genital urinary exam. Like that's how much nobody. Totally. And in our exam, like I was thinking on all my like training in med school. Right. When you have like a standardized patient and you learn like the female pelvic exam, like did the word clitoris ever come up? No. Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. It was like cervix, pap smear, like this is where the fundus is of the uterus, like nothing. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but I think I made it all the way through urology residency without knowing that the clitoris is mostly all inside. Yeah. Like somebody showed me that a couple of years back, like an actual clitoral model with the career and the bulbs and stuff. And, you know, me being like, I didn't have med school and urology training. Like, that's not right. Because I didn't get trained. I didn't know that. Right. right? And then I'm like, holy moly, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Mind blowing. I know. that Like the whole world just thinks of the clitoris is like just the tip. Like, yeah. And then, and then you take it even further, even like just drawings, the tip is actually drawn small to relative size in most anatomic drawings. Like it's not even drawn to scale. In, in most drawings. Yeah, we're like, just they make it this little, littler than it actually is. Negate our own pleasure or our, or we're like symbolically like have our pleasure negated like in our concept of like what it should be, you know, like a, it's just fascinating. Totally. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I just start, you know, the reason I started this podcast is like how society handles women's sexual health is like so, is so inaccurate is the nice way. Inaccurate is a nice way to say it. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm like, it's so interesting to talk about. And it, it, you know, permeates everything of even like how anatomic drawings to teach people aren't correct. Yeah. I feel like on a day-to-day -day basis, my, you know, like teaching basics of like women's sexual health comes up again and again and again and again. And it's like such basic things, right? Because like, mm -hmm. and, and I, you know, just women coming in for their recurrent UTIs and it's like having to explain to them the importance of their hormones you know, and their anatomy and preventing the UTIs. And like, they had no idea. Like, they just had absolutely no idea, you know? And it, oh, I know. I was thinking about that. I should keep a running list, but I was thinking like I was going to do like Myth Mondays on my Instagram account or something. Cause I just hear, you hear myth. Myth just like come to you in clinic all the time, yes. right? Like, oh, I don't want Botox in my vagina to help me not, I don't understand how Botox in my vagina helps me not pee less. And I'm like, no, no, the Botox goes in your bladder, you know, and like just simple misconceptions all the, or I don't need estrogen cream because I'm not, I don't have sex. Right. Like irrelevant, right? Right. It's like these myths come into my clinic all the time. I'm like, I need to do something. If I, if I remotely loved writing books, <laughs> I could find somebody to help me, but I could do a book just about myths yeah. that people come in with. I also just, the words people use to tiptoe around these organs also, uh, you know, and, and oh, like, yeah. like, you know, adult women coming in who are, 
well-educated professional and maybe, you know, 45 years old and they come in and they say like, oh, down there or my lady parts or my girl things. And I'm like, your girl things? Like, it's just like a magical, like, it's a magical, like pink litter place. Like, like you have body parts down there. They have names. You can talk about that. That's okay. We're in the doctor's office. You wouldn't go to like, your dermatologist and say, well, like on my face parts, there's like a condition <laughs> that's happening or like <laughs> my, fist, my face parts are itchy. <laughs> right. Like, like I know we can talk about these things. We can say these things, the body parts, like stop being ashamed yeah. of it. Like what the fuck? Totally. <laughs> and like everything about everything down there isn't just a UTI. Right. Like I get that all the time. Yes. Like, oh, I went in, I, I complained of X, Y, and Z. So they gave me antibiotics. It's like everything that bothers down there is not a UTI. It's way more, there's way more to it than that. I know, I know. Totally. <sighs> so what's your, what's your favorite procedure in urology? Do you have one? I don't know. I don't know. If you're like, I could do that, all, I could do that all day long, every Monday, give me that procedure. It's because it's so fun. Yeah, I mean, like, I would want to say penile implants because I like doing them, but I would probably stay, like, really easy kidney stone surgeries, I would probably say. Or, like, uh, Dude, that's mine. Yeah, no, they're great. Distal rigid ureteroscopy. Oh, it's, 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 it's oh, glorious. To die for, I love it. <laughs> I also would say, like, when, when somebody comes in with, like, penile skin bridges mm-hmm. and they didn't realize that you could fix those and, like, you take those down easy peasy like numb them up and like put a clamp on it and open it up and they're like my penis popped out like it's i've had this since birth and now my penis is one third longer (laughs) when you did that in five minutes i'm like oh so satisfying i know so satisfying (laughs) do you have certain music that you listen to in the or you know i should but i uh i feel like i just have the nurses put on like whatever and they kept putting on this like hipster barbecue playlist on pandora and like it drives me insane like i i would say i do listen to like hipster music but i can't listen to that playlist ever again like no dude so there's so there's hipster there's hipster cocktail and there's hipster barbecue for pandora and so we just started listening to hipster, like, I think it was my PA who liked it. Mm-hmm. So we started listening to hipster cocktail, which is different than hipster barbecue. Okay. And that's for all prolapse surgeries now. And so like that PA has moved on, but my prolapse surgery is hipster cocktail hour. Like you, you, you time, Has to be. you time the parts of the surgery to like which song. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, like my, my cards, my preference cards and now are not correct at all, but I have my nurse, uh, the nurses are trained well enough that if it's a prolapse surgery, it's hipster cocktail hour. Uh, terps are Bob Dylan and dis and ureteroscopy has to be hollow notes. That's hilarious. That's amazing. I know. I know. So I like, I can't do, I will jinx myself if I try to do a ureteroscopy and Hall Notes radio isn't on. Huh. Interesting. See, now I'm going to get paranoid. I uh, if I ever have a bad outcome, I'm going to think about the playlist I had on and I'm going to get paranoid <laughs> about that. And, like, yeah. and then you're going to be like, I can't do that. Yeah, definitely. But that, like, that's why I can't, I can't eat vanilla ice cream because I, I, when I was a kid, there was some vanilla ice cream that happened and then a bad outcome happened. Mm. So I can't do like straight up and I can do vanilla ice cream with stuff but not, so I, I just have like associations. Huh. Fascinating. Maybe that's not normal. No, I mean, like, um, okay. I, I'm superstitious when I'm like on call. I have all these like things, like I don't like put it like, you know, wear this color socks. Like I'm going to have a lot of consults tonight. And like, it's just about my life in general. Do I'm you? not like that, but for call, it's just Good. like, I'm like, 
mystic. Like I'm a full mystic. I, <laughs> I think medicine does this for people though. Like these are super high functioning, intelligent people that get into med school and then they become superstitious. They were fine before that. I think part of that is like, especially with call, like the locus of control is not with you. Right. And people like us are like so much like in control. Like when I'm in clinic, I have control of like, you know, how fast I pe- see people and like what I say to them and what we do. And like, I operate in more control, but like when you're on call, it's like, where is it going to come from? <laughs> so you, so totally. you know, heaven forbid it's a full moon. <laughs> right, right. Right. So yeah. That's awesome. So how do you take, so if some, if some, say somebody owns a penis, they're a penis bearing human, how would you tell them to best take care of what's, what's good penis health? Hmm. I would say good penis health is anything that's good for your vascular health. Right. Because, so that's, I think, a very like poorly understood thing. Basically, vascular health is good penis health. Right. So like an erection is not like a, a mysterious substance that is like in your body and it gets soft and hard. And it's like it's just your penis filling up with blood. Right. And, and it's a network of really sophisticated blood vessels and blood channels and blood spaces. And one of my fellowship mentors, you know, would say basically that erectile dysfunction is the canary in the coal mine for a lot of cardiovascular conditions. So, uh, you know, meaning if you have atherosclerosis, things that contribute to heart attacks and strokes, you know, this also affects your sexual function just as much. So, you know, basically, eating a healthy diet, exercising, like maintaining a normal weight, all those things are like actually really good for your penis also. And, you know, I, I see guys sometimes who come in for ED and I say to them, like, these lifestyle factors are so important for your penis health. And they're like, I wish somebody had explained that to me, you know, 20 years ago, because it's not a conversation. You know, sexuality is not a conversation that's brought into the larger health picture, like almost ever. Yeah. And it should be. It's huge. We like, we corded it off. Yeah. I know. I I told people, I'm like, if they put, if they put on cigarette packages that this will cause your penis to not be hard, like they should put something dramatic on cigarette packages and it would, maybe that would help people not smoke. Yeah. And also, you know, tragically, when you have people who had like type one diabetes and they didn't get the support from like a young age to control their blood sugars and they didn't know the effect that it would have on their sexual function and i've seen guys come in to the office like in their 30s and if they didn't have those resources or the education and they've had you know almost lifelong poorly controlled blood sugar some of them have basically like end-stage erectile dysfunction like the penile implants and it's like really tragic that then like when they were like 16 nobody ever said hey your diabetes will like affect your penis because like a 16 year old cares about his penis. <laughs> like, you know, if he had been given that education, yeah. then, like he, he might've been able to, you know, kind of like seek out ways to control it better. Totally. And, and do you see, I don't know if you see it, like what's the actual data on improving erectile dysfunction with changing your lifestyle? Like, so I start exercising, I stop smoking, I lose weight. Like what's the data on getting erectile dysfunction back? or function back. Yeah, I I know I don't have the numbers in front of me. Obviously, like a lot of the changes cannot be undone. But there is, you know, definitely an improvement, without a doubt. I mean, you you know, you can lower your cardiovascular risk and improve your blood vessel health and and also, you know, improve your your hormone parameters, you know, with a healthy lifestyle. So it does improve it. It's definitely not going to be 100%. But 
I have seen people really improve with with healthy lifestyle. And alternatively, I'd say when you're like more energetic and you're, you feel better about you know your your body image and you feel more confident, then like you're also just more kind of sexually in the zone. So I think it's just better in so many ways. You know now. That's not like to shame people into saying like lifestyle modification is like is a prerequisite, right? Like one of those things like we tell men, like a lot of people tell men, like if they don't lose weight, then they shouldn't be on testosterone. Where it's like maybe if they were on testosterone, like that would help them lose weight, right? So I don't want to like be misconstrued that like I think you can fix all these problems with lifestyle modification, but it's definitely, you know, just an important discussion for education. So totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, you know, I think a big, another big misperception is people people don't know that people can keep having sex like into the 70s, 80s, you know, above if they want to. I think there's this big misperception that like it just stops at some point. And maybe that's our society like telling us that. But I talked to like couples, I had this couple and they were like, well, if you tell us that it's possible that we could be having sex in our 60s and 70s, then we'll, I think, you know, take good care of our, it was something. But I'm like, of course you can. Like I, I see people who are in their happily sexually active in their eighties. You're gonna have to do some work and try some new things that you weren't doing when you were eighteen. But like this misperception that it, it has to stop or it does stop, I think is is definitely ubiquitous. Yeah, I mean it's definitely like that. I don't know when you learn like how women become like dichotomized into like you know kind of like the mother or like the whore sort of like paradigm. Mm-hmm. And I feel like what we do is like we tell women that they like age out of like sexuality. You know, and men too, and men too. And, and like, I think in popular, you know, like media and also, you know, we just don't portray older people as sexual beings. Especially mothers. I think the mother, like what a good mother is, right? A good mother is not sexually active. Right. Like wherever that came from. But I think that that misperception, I need to start a list for my myth Mondays (laughs) on Instagram. I can't say that they're paragons of role modeling, but one thing I do appreciate about the Kardashians is that like, they're all like super into being moms and super into being like sexy and i'm like you know what you can be a mom and still like pose naked on social media and it's not like oh because i have kids but like they can't know that their mother was doing this it's more like no i'm gonna pose in like like a string bikini and like love my like voluptuous curves and like my baby's gonna be in the photo shoot and i'm like you know what good for you like i right good for good you. job kardashian yeah. I mean, it's almost paradoxical, right? Because you're like, sex is what got the kids into your life in the first place. Right. Right. <laughs> like, well, I, well, I, yeah, I just, that's super interesting. Yeah. So what's what in your work, what do you think, or in society, what do you think the biggest misperception about the penis is? That it has to be bigger to be better. That is a, that is a really, like, I was thinking about this, right? Because I'll have, like, cohorts of men who come in for sexual dysfunction, and there'll be the guys with erectile dysfunction, and, like, generally they want treatment options but they're not like psychologically devastated by it and then for some reason i don't know but then they'll have guys who come in with peyronies and they'll have like change in the appearance of the penis or shrinking like a smaller size of the penis and they're like absolutely devastated i and i feel like the psychological toll associated with the penile appearance is so much more than like the the penile function. And obviously some of these guys coming in with priorities also have an effect on their sexual function too. But for some reason, this like layer of how it looks is like so devastating. And, you know, I was thinking about how like, like obviously there's pressure on women to like look a certain way, but I also know like women in my life who have like all sizes of like breasts, for example, and like, are very like confident and like happy with that. Obviously there are issues surrounding that, but I would say that like 
I don't know. I think I think the size of your penis is like this kind of thing that is like deeply shameful for people. And it's like if you look at the literature, right? They show that a uh, you know like female partners of men care far less about their partner size than the than the men do. It's like a fact. Like they've shown that in multiple studies. They've also shown that like most men who who are unhappy with the size of their penis actually have a statistically normal penis. So which basically means that like we've given a lot of people like a head case over their penis size. And then I was even today like watching this show on Netflix called Pose. I don't know if you've heard of it. Mm-mm. But it, it's all about basically like the ballroom culture in New York City in the like 80s and 90s. So it's all like, you know, people of color who are like queer or trans or, or gay. And they're so, so good at affirming like different types of like gender fluidity and bodies and just massively kind of affirming to different types of sexuality and gender expression, except that whenever they're having a conversation about having sex with somebody. They're like, oh, how big was his dick? And then everybody would like giggle about it. And I was thinking like, holy shit, like they are affirming like in the deepest way possible trans bodies. And yet like we're shaming like small penises at the same, you know, it's just like, it's crazy. And like all this like- like, It's so ubiquitous that that nobody even thinks that that's what they're doing. Right, right. I mean, it's just so like crazy that like in the most kind of, woke and PC and like just expansive like concept you know places that we have in cultural expressions of sexuality we're still doing this like small penis shaming and it's just like okay like and I'm sure the writers didn't even think about it like and it was in like at least three separate scenes like with three different sets of characters where they're just like how big is his dick like it's just like always 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 you know and it's like yeah like, it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Totally. And I think, you know, the name of this podcast being You Are Not Broken is, and I know a lot of couples listen to this podcast together of like, for guys to realize that society puts women in a big bucket with sex, but it's like, we do the same thing to men. Yeah. We being society, women and men. But I think definitely even men to men, you know, shaming and joking about about what's appropriate with penis size. When most people are just, they're completely normal. Right. They're, they're completely normal. And it's also like not what makes you a good sexual partner, like at all, like, like at all. It's right. It's, it's communication. It's understanding what people's preferences are. It's like understanding how people like to orgasm, like what, what's erotic to them. Like it's just your penis size. I mean, I've had terrible sex with people with big penises. Like it was just thought like, like, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> And I think you know, maybe it comes from now that you and I are like, we're solving this problem, right? But right. where it comes from is like, people don't know how to give women pleasure. So they just assume it must be penis size instead of actually learning how like a woman achieves pleasure. So my fiance, who's a comedian, he has this great joke and I'm going to like mess it up so much, but it's like one of my favorite jokes. And it's basically how like, when you're a kid, like a, like a young boy, you think that like the woman's pleasure center is just like as deep as possible in, inside her vagina. So you're like a young guy, like, you, you know, like a teenage guy and you're like first starting to explore women sexually. And like, if you, you know, just do digital penetration that you're just like trying to get as far back there as possible. And he's like, and then I found I was like an M. Night Shyamalan movie. It was like in the front the whole time, like, which is like, <laughs> what, what is like the sixth sense or like whatever, you know, that movie, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but and I was like, like, it was so obvious, but nobody saw it. Right. And I was like, Holy shit. I was like, yes, the first time that any guy like digitally penetrated me, he definitely was like basically just like lifting me up with his hand 
by like how far he was shoving his hand up my vagina. And it was like, that doesn't do anything good. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that feels like a pap smear. <laughs> like stop doing that. <laughs> yeah. And, and like guy, guys, you know, what they're wanting to have the big penis is like, that's what they're trying to accomplish, right? right. Is, is providing sexual satisfaction for somebody. Have you ever, have you seen guys actually hurt themselves by trying to get a bigger penis? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is like all the people into like jelking and like, this is a guy from when I was in fellowship, like a young guy had put like his penis in like an industrial strength vacuum to try to like make it larger. Oh. And he, really jacked up his penis yeah i mean there's just all sorts of like bad scary stuff that people do and you're right if it's started with education on how pleasure is not predicated on size that maybe like culturally we would stop talking about that so much yeah totally because they're just like trying to solve the problem but that's it's not actually a problem <laughs> right like yeah that's that's wild. So the over-the-counter penis supplements for erections, do they actually work? So there have been some good studies that came out recently in the journal Sexual Medicine about the, like male enhancement supplements. And like a lot of them like have garbage in them and things that they say that they have in them, oftentimes they don't. And, you know, essentially because supplements aren't like FDA regulated, they're just not, I don't really recommend people take those. And there really isn't like literature that they're helpful. And you oftentimes like don't really know what you're getting. You know, I do in terms of like over the counter supplements have recommendations that I that I do make to people. So I definitely tell everybody to take like 2000 units a day of vitamin D or D3, because there are studies showing that actually making sure you're not vitamin D deficient can have definitive improvement on like sexual health. And so and especially like in our part of the country, Pacific Northwest, like Many people don't have a lot of sunlight exposure for large periods of the year. And just in general, right, humans were meant to be like hunter gatherers and like outside a lot. And like no normal adults are really, for the most part, outside all day. (laughs) So, you know, you're not going to get your sunshine vitamin that way. So take some vitamin D. So that's an easy one. And then the other thing for guys or, you know, with erectile dysfunction that I will recommend taking like L-arginine because that is also, I'd say, of any supplement associated with using... Know, for erectile dysfunction, the L-arginine has like you know a few studies actually showing a, a consistent benefit, and that's because it it basically provides some of the molecule that helps the muscle in the penis relax and help you with engorgement. So if there's anybody listening who you know takes Viagra and wants to you know potentially optimize their results with that or other Viagra you know affiliated drugs, then you can take L-arginine. So those are the the OTCs that I recommend. <laughs> cool. Have you heard, I heard this a while back. I haven't followed up on it. Have you heard that Viagra or its cousins at similar drugs are going to go over the counter in America? Where is that? Have you heard that? I haven't heard that. I mean, I know that, for example, like in the UK, it's basically over the counter. You have to like sign a yeah, thing. Yeah. And I heard the, with the UK is because it's cheaper for them to provide over the counter because it's a nationalized health service. So they're like, people don't need to go to the doctor to get this. Let's just make it over the counter. So it's actually like a financial decision. It's so fascinating how like financial incentivization like changes the way things work, right? Like here, right, like doctors want more business, not less business. So they don't really care to have by ever become over the counter, right? And even more mm-hmm. so now we have these like probably multi-million dollar companies like for hymns right? Mm-hmm. Like these online men's wellness companies that I'm sure at this point have tremendous lobbying power because they're very wealthy now. And they're all predicated on the idea that you would need to go on them to get Viagra because that's essentially their mm-hmm. main business, right? And so if Viagra becomes over the counter, then like, what are what's the purpose of having those 
those companies. Yeah. I, I don't know. I bet that they would be highly interested in making sure that it doesn't happen anytime soon. <laughs> totally. If I could put a medication over the counter, I would put vaginal estrogen over oh, the counter. Oh, yeah. I mean... <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Like people don't, people don't need to make it to a surgeon to get vaginal estrogen. And it's so safe. It's so safe. I mean, the Tylenol people take is, is more dangerous. Like you can, you will be much more successful at killing yourself with a bottle of Tylenol than with vaginal estrogen. Like you could basically <laughs> smear your whole body in vaginal estrogen and maybe some weird things might happen to you, but like you will not die. <laughs> like, yeah, like, totally. Like <laughs> maybe some, I, I don't see over the counter vaginal estrogen happening, just, you know, sadly, but I'm like, man, if I could make one drug be more available to people, it would be vaginal estrogen. Without a doubt. I mean, I think that there are like, in general, a lot of topicals should be more available to people. But, totally. But yeah. So tell us, tell us about Peyronie's disease. What's Peyronie's disease? How do you get Peyronie's disease? Uh, yeah. So Peyronie's, what I had mentioned before, is basically where you develop some scar tissue in your penis, and which essentially can cause it to curve when you're erect, or potentially to have kind of shrinking of the size of the penis. Generally, in men in their fifties like and sixties, usually pretty sudden, sudden onset. And I'd love to say I know exactly how it happens, but we don't really know how it happens. You know, there are certain genetic factors. So like if you have a family history of something called Dupuytren's contracture or like scar tissue in your hand, then there's a much higher rate of getting Peyronie's. So those two things are genetically linked. People of Scandinavian descent have a higher risk of this. I don't think anyone knows why, but that's a thing. So, and then basically inflammatory, like having an inflammatory milieu in your body. So being a smoker, diabetes, that's not controlled. Those things are associated with a higher rate of heroin. So, you know, if you're of, of Scandinavian descent, you can't undo that. But if you're a smoker, you know, for many reasons, but also for your penis health, stop doing that if you can. <laughs> and yeah, so, you know, what it does is it can obviously make your penis curve. I mean, like, in some cases, very significantly. I mean, if people want to, like, after listening to this, do a Google search of Peyronie's, you know, they'll probably come up with a whole bunch of photos of, like, penises that look like they're, like, 90-degree angles. So it's it sucks, and it's a big deal. And, you know, there are a bunch of different treatment options, surgery, injections. Unfortunately, none of them are, like, amazing. And people who do these surgeries or injections and pretend that they have, like, the perfect outcomes are just lying because they're just not – none of them are great. So – so it's a tough thing. Yeah. There, you know, there's meds and there's creams. Do they work well? No, none of them work well. <laughs> yeah. And generally when I have a guy who's come in and tried that, like they've wasted a lot of money on like high dose vitamin E that they're smearing on their penis. And it's like, not, it's not going to do anything. Like it's zero percent. Mm -hmm. So it's not a skin condition, right? It's like a deep, it's deeper than that. So it's not, it's just not going to change anything. Totally. What do you, what would you say is the biggest misperception you see with people and sex? Hmm. I don't know. That's a good I guess we went through a lot of them already. I know. We already nailed the big, bigger isn't better with penis. <laughs> yeah. And, and the aging out of sex thing. And you can just do a podcast just on myths and be like a five hour podcast. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think maybe the extent to which people always just think it's like, psychological. Like, for example, I had this guy who came in and he had prostate cancer surgery, like a pretty aggressive prostate cancer surgery for based on his type. And um, he ended up with erectile dysfunction afterwards. And he said his wife ended up leaving him because she thought that he didn't love her anymore. And it was like, 
no. <laughs> like, I mean, even, even if there was a psychological component, that doesn't mean somebody doesn't love you anymore. And especially after like a prostate cancer surgery, that's a like normal thing that happens. And it's again, like this kind of mysticism that we surround sexuality with, right? Like if you were having a conversation with somebody and they started getting chest pain, like it doesn't mean they hate you. <laughs> like, I mean, they might, but like, you know, if somebody has like a very legitimate physical reason for erectile dysfunction, like it's so hard for people to like extricate themselves from thinking that that's like only a personal thing, you know? And mm -hmm. sometimes I feel like sex therapy is important not because the root cause is psychological, but because you have to demystify the idea that it is all psychological. Like you have to take people and have them right. extricate themselves from that, you know? Totally. I just heard something this week. It was, I can't remember who it was. It might've been Lori Mintz. She's, she's the, the PhD who wrote Becoming Cliterate. Maybe it was her. It was basically like sex is the only thing that everybody is supposed to be an absolute expert at with absolutely no training. Right. So true. It's so true. I heard that. I heard it. And I was like, oh, that's really good. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's incredible, right? Like how many classes did you go to in your life to like learn to play an instrument or like play a sport or like ride a bike? It's like, and then everything around you is like, you're going to be good at sex, good at sex. And like, shame you if you don't. But like, nobody ever explained to you how to do it. Like ever. Yeah. You, you got no education, but be an expert at it. And, and also know, know what a different person likes, let alone a different gendered person likes. Right. Like that's a huge, it's a huge ask. Yeah. Yeah. It's tremendous. I love Rachel Rubin. She's giving a lecture and she said, there is nobody who can't get better at sex. So true. And I was like, I was like, man, that's good. <laughs> I need to take that. I'll give her credit every time I say it. But man, I, I'm taking, I'm stealing that one. I know she has a lot of good ones. She has a lot of she good ones. Yeah, she's, she's totally on. Speaker. She's totally on fire. <laughs> she is. She's fantastic. So, so how did you find a comedian as a fiance? I moved to Portland and I had made some new friends and we basically ended up at a comedy show. And I was already hungover actually from going to like the like lesbian art fair or something before that which was like of course like when you move to portland you have to do that <laughs> and i had been drinking like lots of like like shitty wine and like listening to people talk about their like lesbian experiences and, to, like... <laughs> and it was awesome i loved that but then i like then i went to this comedy club and i was like hungover for already and the guy who was headlining was my now fiance and he was making jokes about being single because I found out later that that's what comedians do when they're on the road and singles so then they can get laid, like, to announce it, to announce it, like. It's like the calling card. Right. And so. Here I am. So he's making jokes about being single. And I was like, oh, he's cute. And I'm just like, single. Yes. And then afterwards, I just like, I remember my like heart was like racing. Like, I was like racing. And my friend went barreling up to him and was like, my single friend wants to like talk to you. I was like, Hey, and he was like selling t-shirts and he's like, so what do you do for a living? I'm like, I'm a dick surgeon. And I was like, oh, That's what you said. Yeah. That's awesome. and he was just like, all right, like what? Like, do you think you were making that up? I don't, yeah, did, I don't know. Did it phase him at all? Or was he like, whatever? Yeah. I mean, I think he made some joke or something. I don't, I don't really know. And it was funny because like he comes off on stage as like aggressive and like very confident, but like, immediately having a one-to-one -one conversation he was like i guess comes off as like a kind of like a sincere and a kind of vulnerable person which i like found really charming like far more like so than most surgeons i know <laughs> and i was like how is this possible like i would i would have like stage fright to go up and do what you just did but you come off as like kind of this 
soft and vulnerable person. And then we went and got a drink and he doesn't drink. So he drank a seltzer <laughs> and I got a beer. And then we kissed on the street and he went back to his, like in his cab. And it was like, people on the street were like slow clapping us. Like, <laughs> like, and I walked back in the bar afterwards and these like a group of women I didn't know were like, that's the best kiss I've ever seen. How together and i was like i just met him tonight <laughs> and then the next day he texted me and he's like you want to go for a walk in the rose garden and then we did and you know it's just the rest of history that is fantastic yeah did, was, was he like nonplussed about your job he's like yeah whatever yeah i don't know i guess i don't really think he like cared and i will say like in my life there are definitely guys that had like a thing about it you know mm-hmm. how about you how about in like your relationship when you first started dating was he like why are you like I, I think yeah i think a lot of guys couldn't handle a f- female urologist there was actually a there's a gomer blog which is like the medical version of the onion <laughs> about a female urologist and the boyfriend like couldn't handle it but no my husband's like whatever yeah no like no biggie i remember when me and my girlfriends would like go out in new york sometimes when we were meeting people at bars i would just tell people i was like an accountant because i just didn't want to like you know, I'm proud of what I do, but I was just like, I don't like feel like you making fun of me or saying like, oh, you must just really love dicks so much or like, you know, because it's like after a while of being single and being a urology resident, like you get that one too many times for you to care to like have to talk about. Yeah. You're like, I'm just not in the mood. Right. Right. So then I would just say it as a county because that just seemed like the most like Everybody knows what that is, and nobody's gonna like question your sanity for being an accountant. So like, right, totally. Like, be like, move on. Right. If you want a conversation to end, right, you do that. If you right. if you want a conversation to continue, then you might tell them what you actually do. Right, right. And I mean, if they started asking me, like, if they happened to be an accountant and started asking me like the intricacies of being an accountant, I would have to like, I don't fucking know. <laughs> Right. I, but, yeah. I need to go to the bathroom now. Right. But, like, usually <laughs> I that I gotta run up, so yeah. That's awesome. But I mean, I mean, conversely, like from my standpoint, right, I would say that in my mind, like, I always thought I would be in a relationship with somebody who was like, had a nice, like, good on paper profession and like steady income. And like the last thing, you know, I ever thought I would do was like be in a relationship with somebody who made their entire living off of being creative, you know, and I, I guess like, to some extent, getting over stereotypes, like I, not only have come to like appreciate and respect like how insanely hard he works, but also like myself for, you know, kind of looking beyond the need for like a type type A career path in like my partner, you know, like, which I never expected out of myself. <laughs> totally. I mean, I think it's, it's stereotypes both ways, right? Because yeah. it's like, you're okay not having a man be the solid breadwinner and he's okay with a woman having a very significant successful job. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Winner, winner. Yeah. And everybody's happy. <laughs> Definitely. There will be wedding and there will be wedding bells someday when weddings happen. Yeah. No, well, we're, we're still getting married very soon. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. So who, because you guys have a podcast. Yes. How did, how did the birth of the podcast come about? I think that was also just like, we'd be out and about and people would say, oh, like a comedian and a dick surgeon. That's like insane. Like you guys should have a podcast. <laughs> And, and we're like, yeah, I guess that is. And, you know, you and I were talking about this. There's so much I care about in, in urology and sexual health that I can't really explore with the space I would like to in a clinical environment, right? Like, I want to talk long form about hormones and orgasms and anatomy and relationships. But even though I do that full time, I don't have the space to do that, really. It makes perfect sense to me. I totally get that. Yeah. So the podcast was like a great way 
to do that because we're like, oh, we'll have people call in with these questions and we'll have fun with it and talk about it in this way that you can't, in a, you know, 15 minutes in the office. And also because like you're saying, I mean, so there's so much bad information out there. So, you know, why not say doctors need to stop like just writing publications for doctors and going to conferences where they only talk to other doctors, like doctors need to engage in the public narrative and in hundred percent and, and in hundred percent digestible formats of information consumption, because otherwise everybody who knows everything scientific about sexuality will be off at their conference. And all the yahoos are going to be like making these multi-million dollar, like female wellness companies out of fucking garbage. Totally. With my podcast, like, you know, it's, it was in my head a year or two before I ever did anything about it. And I think I was finally like, why does Gwyneth Paltrow get to tell women about their vaginas? Why does she get to do that? She's an actor. She's a phenomenal actor. She's a great business person, like full on respect. If she wants to pay me lots of money to come on, I'm putting it out in the universe and I'm manifesting. But I'm like, I am the one who sees vulvas 20 times a day. Nobody sees vulvas more than I do. Right. Like I'm, I'm the one who should be out there being like, women aren't broken. And if they just had the education, they'd be empowered and they could do something about it. And so, yeah, it's like doctors aren't out there. And like we were talking about, like, I just got asked to do a book chapter on incontinence for other doctors to read. And I'm like, I don't have any, like, I have no joy in that, but I have like immense joy in reaching somebody in Kansas. And she said she listens to this with her husband and they know so much more now. Like, I'm like, oh, joy right there. So my fiance, his uncle lives in Thailand and somebody was like, you know, oh, your last name is such and such. Do you know Mo Mandel, who's my fiance? And he's like, yeah, I'm his uncle. (laughs) And he's like, how do you know him? And he's like, oh, I listen to his podcast. (laughs) <laughs> that he does with me where we talk about sex stuff and uh, so somebody in thailand was talking to mo's uncle in thailand yeah, i think at one time like for one week awesome. we were the number one or the number five podcast in like uzbekistan or something like <laughs> like i swear to god we had like some chart of like where we were ranking and i was like that's so cool like i bet like people in uzbekistan haven't heard from a female urologist before like whatever <laughs> you know totally and so it's so powerful and 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 I want to qualify this that I don't like there are plenty of people who are not medical doctors who have great sexual health information, but there are bad actors out there. And I do feel like physicians are so trained to try to operate in their own sphere that we just like horrendously overlook our obligation to engage in public media. Totally. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that, I mean, you know, it's fun to get to know the other doctors that are doing it, right? Because you're like, okay, there are other people who kind of have the same thought and passion about like, but we need to talk to the people, not just to each other in like the, you know, the book we write for each other to read. Yeah. And I think also for my own like professional resilience, I think the machine of modern American medicine and the regulations and the time constraints and like, it can make you feel like you forget the passion you have for the things that you treat. And so to go into a place where you have so much more control over it is really great. Like there's a, you know, a social media group about like physicians on fire, right? And it's like, Basically, it's all about doctors who want to like make as much money as possible and like live as simply as possible so that they can get out of medicine as soon as possible because they're all like broken from it. And like, so they can do all their other things that actually interest them. And I was like, wait, I actually find like sexual health like interesting. Like, and I do care about this. And I'm so lucky to be an expert on this. 
office. Like, I don't want it to be that I'm getting out of the office so that I can be really good at like canning things. Like, <laughs> like I, I, yeah, I live in Portland, but I personally am not super into canning things and I don't ever plan to become that. Like, like when I'm making my own soap, however, yeah. <laughs> Just but I do have a friend who's a very high power female lawyer who makes her own soap and like she's a super hardcore feminist and that's awesome but like you know it's it's okay for us to remember that like we can be joyful and also have like extracurricular interest in our area of content expertise you know like totally. that's okay and I know. I was telling somebody, I'm like, it just, it happens. It just accidentally happens that I have this like massive education, interest and passion in a topic that actually applies to a hundred percent of adults. Yeah. Right. Like I'm not this doctor who's like, oh, I'm actually this expert in this like, you know, heterozygous chromosome 18 deficiency for anemia right, or right. like making up, I'm making up stuff at this point, but like there are people who are amazing experts in like these niche, niche, niche things. And I'm like, Turns out I'm an expert on something that like every single person does. Every single person. <laughs> like, how did that happen? Yeah. It happened because nobody's actually amazingly all that interested in it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's 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 absolutely fascinating how like we're like oh we have like a so sexualized like society and it's like in everything and I'm like it is in everything but like like our education about it is just still horrible and like and our ability to cope with its dysfunction is zero. <laughs> totally. You know, so I know. yeah. I just kept I just kept telling women like you're not broken. You're not broken. You're not broken. And then I'm like, oh, that's the name for my podcast. Yeah. <laughs> like, no. yeah, I just kept saying it over and over again. And I'm like, oh, it's a thing. Well, I, like it's ubiquitous. I mean, this is another, you know, I think about this, like if you had, right, like multiple sclerosis, like God forbid, right. And that's a horrible thing to go through. But like, you know, maybe you'd like know that people were in a walk for you or you were engaging in that walk or there'd be like some community uh, awareness that you were participating in. Right. And there'd be like, you know, kind of a, a pride in the way you advocate for somebody who has what you have, right? And like, mm -hmm. when it comes to sexual conditions, there's none of that, right? Like, there's no like, you know, walk for people who have like pelvic pain, even though it can be devastating. I mean, it can be absolutely mm -hmm. devastating. And there's no like, there's no like public ability to kind of have pride in your survivorship of these things. Totally. And that's another thing that, you know, people in this space, like suffer from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and nobody talks about it. Right. Yeah. And like, and even just like the relationships that are suffering because of the sexual dysfunction in it is like, nobody talks about that. Like I'm having, I'm having these issues with my, with my spouse awareness week. Well, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I don't think I could have more fun than I've had with you. Again, you can find her at Ashley G Winter at Twitter and Facebook Ashley Winter MD. Thank you so Ooh, much for coming. Yeah, it was so great being on. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Have a good day.